Welcome to the SWIB podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. This past year has presented a unique set of challenges for investors navigating volatile financial markets. Investors face concerns from geopolitical crises and supply chain issues to the Great Resignation and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates several times in an effort to counter the highest inflation in four decades. Despite the challenges of 2022, the State of Wisconsin Investment Board remained committed to its long-term investment strategy that aims to keep annuity adjustments and contribution rates stable and meet the benefits promised to over 660,000 Wisconsin Retirement System participants. So how did SWIB's strategy weather the volatility of the past year? And what does the future look like? In this episode of the SWIB podcast, we welcome back SWIB Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer Edwin Denson. We'll talk to Edwin about what he and his team experienced in the past year as they navigated these choppy markets. We'll also get a chance to talk with him a little bit about some of the global events that made headlines and impacted investors and get his thoughts on what we might expect as we start the journey through a new year. The SWIB podcast is a regular opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin retirement system. Please make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your fellow WRS members and leave a review on Apple Podcasts so it's easier for other members to find the show. Joining us once again on the podcast is SWIB Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer Edwin Denson. Edwin was appointed EDCIO in April 2021 and joined SWIB in 2018 as Managing Director of Asset and Risk Allocation. Before joining SWIB, Edwin was Managing Director Strategic Tilting at Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. And prior to that, Edwin spent 13 years in asset allocation, currency, and risk management. Earlier in his career, Edwin was an economist at Lehman Brothers, Primark Decision Economics, and Putnam Investments. Edwin holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Cornell University and a PhD in economics from Northwestern. So Edwin, first off, Happy New Year, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you with us here on the SWIB Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, and Happy New Year to you as well, and to all our listeners. Edwin, last year when we had you on the podcast to kick off the new year, we talked about the WRS trust funds finishing another strong year. In 2021, both the core trust fund and the variable trust fund finished with double-digit positive returns. Unfortunately, 2022 was a little bit different. It seems like there were a lot of factors that came into play that caused a very volatile year for the financial markets. We'll get into some of those things in a little bit, but let's start off with talking about how the trust funds finished the year. Great. Well, the core trust fund, which is the larger of the two WRS trust funds with more than $114 billion in assets, ended the year with their preliminary one-year net return of minus 12.92% and a preliminary five-year net return of positive 6.16% per year. The core fund's preliminary 10- and 20-year returns, net of external manager fees, were 7.25% per year and 7.68% per year, respectively. And SWIB did beat its benchmarks for all of these periods. And just for comparison, even though the core fund was down 12.92% for 2022, the S&P 500 was down 18.11%, and the Bloomberg U.S. government credit index return was minus 13 
2.58%. And that puts our negative return in perspective. So although we're never happy with a negative return, we did manage to outperform both the broad equity market and fixed income markets. The variable fund, which is an optional stock-only fund with more than $8 billion in assets currently, ended the year with a preliminary one-year net return of minus 17.82% and a preliminary five-year net return of 6.49% per year. The variable fund's 10-year and 20-year returns, net of external manager fees, were 9.82% and 8.83% respectively. So despite all the negative numbers of the past year, the good news in all of that is WRS participants will see their annuities and contribution rates remain somewhat stable. Well, that's correct. Strong absolute investment returns in three of the past four years are expected to prevent any negative annuity adjustment for beneficiaries this spring and provide continued stable employer and employee contribution rates for 2024. The Department of the Employee Trust Funds will soon provide estimated ranges for annuity adjustments for both the core trust fund and the variable trust fund and announce those adjustments in March. And investment performance, of course, as we mentioned, also affects contribution rates and the rates for 2024 will be set in June. I mean, that's got to come as really reassuring news to participants in the WRS. It's certainly good news and a testament to the work that SWIB's investment team does in managing these trust funds, Edwin. It really is, Dusty. I'm very proud of the work that SWIB staff does on behalf of the WRS participants. Throughout the past year, SWIB staff has worked very diligently to weather the volatility we saw in the financial markets and the negative return environment we are in by being able to be innovative and seeking out opportunities to earn long-term returns while taking prudent levels of risk. So Edwin, let's dive a little deeper into those returns in the market environment over the past year. Can you talk a little bit about the various asset classes and how they performed? Absolutely. It was a very challenging year with really nowhere to hide from low or actually negative returns in public markets. The S&P was down significantly last year. And so was public fixed income, you know, as represented by the government credit index that we mentioned earlier. But one nice thing to point out is the diversification benefit that we did get from our exposure to private markets. Despite, again, a very challenging year for both public equity and public fixed income, our private equity debt and venture capital area returned a positive 3.76% on a preliminary basis for 2022. And then even more surprisingly, real estate delivered a 16.67% positive return for the calendar year. And that is what allowed us to deliver a return, again, although negative, and we're never happy with that higher than the returns that we saw in either public fixed income or public equity. So the past year has been marked by a volatile and challenging equity and fixed income return environment. This is the first year that stocks and bonds both logged a negative return since 1969, according to investment research firm Callan. How do you foresee equities and bonds performing in 2023? And which equity and fixed income sub-asset classes do you see providing institutional investors with the best opportunities? 
Well, as you mentioned, Chris, equities and bonds have suffered together over the past year. And it was a very striking event, ending about 20 years during which inflation had remained low and was well anchored. And stock and bond prices generally moved in opposite directions, acting as mutual diversifiers for each other. Now, the change in this dynamic was due to surprisingly high and persistent inflation, which forced the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates more than expected and also more quickly than anyone had anticipated even just 12 months prior to the beginning of the tightening cycle. High inflation and high real interest rates induced by the Fed caused bonds to sell off and have their worst year in several decades. Tight monetary policy is slowing economic growth currently. It's lowering equity earnings expectations for the next couple of years. And more importantly, it's raising the risk premium that equity investors are demanding to hold equity, pushing the prices down even further. Now, in our estimation, Both bonds and equities were quite overvalued a year ago, so that's at the beginning of 2022. And with all of the action we've seen in terms of both selling off, we currently view both stocks and bonds as being roughly around fair value. Now, on a view that the Fed tightens somewhat more than is currently expected and economic growth slows more than expected, and then that slowdown will actually probably unfold only very gradually over 2023, both stocks and bonds probably have room to move lower, making them look more attractive on a forward-looking basis. So there's sort of a silver lining to that potential outcome, and that is that if they both continue to suffer a bit in 2023, that only leads to a better expectation for returns going forward. So anyone that has been following the news over the past year knows the challenges the financial markets have faced. Severe market volatility was caused by a number of factors. Can you talk about some of those factors? Yeah, of course. There were several of them, as you mentioned. First, we've had a continuing impact of the COVID-19 pandemic that's been manifesting itself as a residual supply chain issues that we are still seeing, and also a labor force that's not quite back to where it was before the pandemic started. On the geopolitical front, there's been instability in a number of areas, but again, most notably the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022. And then we have several interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve in an attempt to control the highest inflation rates that we've seen in the past four decades. And in the challenge of a market environment with almost all asset classes experiencing negative returns, without the diversification benefits that usually exist between stocks and bonds, it all adds up to a market environment unlike any in recent memory. So, I mean, obviously there's no map for going forward, having never really seen anything like this, at least not in the past couple decades. But looking at it now from where you sit, Edwin, how likely would you say a recession is in 2023? And if we do experience a recession, what are the primary drivers in your opinion and how long is it likely to last and what are you doing to prepare for it? Well, in our view, a recession does look fairly likely in 2023 based on the National Bureau of Economic Research's definition of a significant decline in economic activity, which lasts more than a few months. The primary driver, of course, is the policy tightening by the Federal Reserve that's intended to lower high inflation. The exact timing of the recession is somewhat uncertain, and it depends on whether inflation is slow to moderate and whether the Fed hikes the federal funds rate more than the four and three quarters to 5% currently priced into the market, and also how long it takes before the Fed moves back into any kind of easing mode again. 
Currently, interest rate sensitive sectors like consumer durable spending and business investment structures, both on the housing and commercial side, are already in decline. As I mentioned earlier, the slowdown has started. However, the labor market and wage growth do remain strong. And households have big savings buffers so that overall consumer spending could continue to expand over the next few quarters, pushing the recession to later in 2023. So you mentioned inflation. Certainly, it's a topic that has grabbed a lot of the attention in headlines and impacts everyday lives of people as well. It's on everybody's mind. So what do you see happening going forward with that? Well, we do believe that inflation has likely peaked, but it's still significantly above the Fed's 2% target. The SWIB outlook is for moderating inflation in 2023, but at a slower pace than the market seems to expect right now. We expect slight negative growth in 2023, but not any more than, say, a minus 1% on GDP. And it might take a while for the recession to develop, again, because of the average consumer still being in a very decent position, both from a wage income standpoint and from the state of consumer balance sheets. Supply chain pressures and goods price inflation have eased somewhat. But persistent undersupply of housing is still driving rent inflation, which is expected to remain high in the next two years. The market is projecting a Fed funds rate of 5% or a peak of 5% sometime in 2023, followed by reductions in interest rates starting to happen before year end. But the Fed has come out recently and been signaling pretty strongly that that's not their central view and that it could take the Fed funds rate higher than 5% and keep it there at least through the end of the year. For most of 2022, households had high liquidity cushions on the back of the government stimulus and forced savings that we'd observed during the COVID pandemic. But that is starting to reverse, which could impact labor force participation. And again, one of the things that's been keeping wage pressures higher is that we've not had a recovery in the labor force or people who are willing to work to levels that we'd seen pre-pandemic. But we do think we could start to see a change in that dynamic as those liquidity buffers start to come down. So let's talk a little bit more about the labor market. We continue to see favorable employment numbers and unemployment remains low. How does that all factor into what the Federal Reserve is doing to fight inflation and whether or not the economy is headed for or already in a recession? Well, no doubt the labor market remains tight. Something to look at beyond the unemployment rate is the quit rate, which is still high but falling. A lower quit rate is likely to signal slower wage inflation. So what's happening right now is that folks are quitting jobs to find other better job opportunities or they have other better job opportunities that they can jump to. And as that quit rate declines, that in general signals that the labor market is loosening. And so that would be good in terms of the Fed's current worry about the trajectory of wage inflation. And again, the labor force participation rate has come up from its pandemic lows, but is stalled out at a rate below pre-pandemic levels. Now, while labor force participation declines hit all groups during the pandemic, men and women over 55 have not recovered. In addition, men ages 35 to 44 and women ages 16 to 24 also have not re-entered the labor force to a point that would be consistent with the pre-pandemic levels. Why do you think that is, Edwin? Well, there's any number of reasons for it. We continue to believe that it's mainly a hangover, again, from a lot of the stimulus that came through in two fiscal years. We have to remember is that the fiscal stimulus that came through in response to the pandemic 
was the largest fiscal stimulus that we'd seen since World War II. And then in addition, the way the stimulus happened, which was literally putting money directly into people's pockets, again, really helped them shore up their liquidity profiles and their balance sheets. And we think that that's leading to a dynamic where people are slow to reenter the workforce. We have to wait for those liquidity balances and balance sheets to erode a bit further. And then that will slowly draw some of those folks back into the labor force and back into the labor market. And one last area that I really think that we ought to touch on as well is the housing market. I mean, as far as touching people's lives go. This is something that's on a lot of people's minds. Just a few short years ago, we saw housing prices skyrocket and inventory numbers fall below demand. That has seemed to taper off a little bit. What does that mean, do you think? Well, taking a step back, there's been some interesting dynamics with what's happened with housing over the last few years. The housing market overvaluation that you referenced, that happened very quickly over a two-year period on the back of easy monetary policy, low mortgage rates, and substantial second home buying actually during the pandemic. This is a juxtaposition against what happened before the great financial crisis where the overvaluation of the housing market took a longer period of time to build. Now, demand for second homes is now in decline, and home purchases have shifted away from the suburbs and central cities now to small towns and rural areas. We have tipped into a period now of housing price decline more generally, but specifically when looking at you know particular areas, cities on the West Coast and in the Southwest saw both the largest run-ups in valuations over the last 20 years, and then now also the largest declines that we've seen over the past six months. While cities in the Northeast, Midwest, and Southeast, they saw the same dynamic, but in a much more moderate fashion. Now, while a correction is coming, it is unlikely to be as severe as the post-Great Financial Crisis period because, again, household balance sheets are in much better shape than they were back then, and debt service ratios are also much lower. So again, similar dynamic to what happened in the financial crisis, but much less magnitude. One of the key drivers now is housing demand has outstripped supply over the last decade. So now we have an issue of low availability. And in addition, floating mortgage rates have really gone out of fashion and most home buyers creditworthiness is high. So despite the fact that interest rates have gone up and are making new home purchases a little tougher to digest from a spending standpoint, folks that currently have mortgages are not being affected because they have fixed rate mortgages. And again, the dynamic here is a little bit different than it was back in 2008, 2009. We have an undersupply of housing in general still as the true underlying trend, as opposed to the oversupply that we saw going into the financial crisis. I think that's been a really great, really helpful summary of sort of the current state of the economy. And certainly we appreciate your taking those really complex topics and making them easy to digest here. But getting back to the WRS then, do those economic conditions that we've just discussed change the way that you're managing the trust funds? Well, as we move into 2023, there are, of course, no guarantees that a performance will rebound. Uh, many of the challenges that the financial markets have been struggling with over the last year have carried over into the new year, and some investors believe that we've entered a low return environment where making money will remain challenging. However, as a long-term investor, uh, SWIB is maintaining its discipline process, and we are sticking to fundamentals during these volatile economic times, as we always have. 
And although many long-term investors may opt to sit back and continue to assess the shifting economic and market environment rather than taking action or responding, we will continue to employ our innovative investment strategy that is poised to take advantage of opportunities during uncertain times. We are going to continue to identify situations when other investors are experiencing constraints of one sort or another, and we can step in to buy assets that are below their intrinsic value. And this is the advantage that SWIB has by being an agile asset manager that can leverage the expertise of the many experienced investment professionals that we have on staff here to benefit the WRS trust funds. So have you altered the asset allocation for the core trust fund in response to these market conditions? Well, you know, earlier we talked about the positive returns generated by private markets. And in December, SWIB's independent board of trustees approved an asset allocation for the core trust fund that remains similar to the allocation for 2022, with the exception of a modest increase to private equity and debt from a target of 12% to 15% and a similar reduction to public equities from a target of 52% to 48%. SWIB's Board of Trustees annually reviews the asset allocation for the trust funds and has approved ranges for each asset class that allow for rebalancing depending on the market environment. Now, one of the reasons for the allocation adjustment that we did recommend and that the board did approve is that private equity provides diversification benefits and opens up investment opportunities that may otherwise not be available. So private equity offers investors access to private companies that are hard to gain exposure to via other asset classes. These companies are often small, fast-growing businesses, and they don't trade on major public exchanges. So you mentioned the increase to private equity. Stephen Kaplan, Neubauer, Family Distinguished Service Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, presented to the SWIB trustees and staff at their annual board workshop last October. He discussed a couple of key advantages to investing in private equity. Can you touch on those? Oh, absolutely. So Professor Kaplan highlighted that over the past 20 years, as the number of public companies has actually declined, the private markets have grown to take their place, opening up new opportunities for investors who are ready, prepared, and have the expertise to invest in the private equity area. In addition to providing those opportunities, private equity has a history of generating solid returns, which is important to pension funds like the WRS as it becomes more challenging to meet their return targets. According to the American Investment Council's 2022 public pension study, private equity delivered the strongest returns of any asset class for public pension portfolios. The report found that private equity investments delivered a median annualized return of 12.3% per year over a 10-year period for public pension funds across America that partner with private equity managers, a greater return than any other asset class, including public equities, which returned 11.2% per year over that same time period. So despite the success of private equity investments in recent years, choosing the right private market investments is a challenge. Professor Kaplan explained that while private equity as an asset class exhibits attractive performance characteristics, his research also shows that it is difficult to identify top level managers on the basis of their prior fund performance. So therefore, consistently outperforming the average private equity fund is not easy. So again, SWIB is fortunate to have a strong team in place managing its private equity investments, isn't it? Indeed, we're very fortunate to have that. Despite the success of private equity investments in general in recent years, choosing the right private market investments is sometimes a challenge. 
SWIP's private equity team has been successful in searching out and executing on successful opportunities in a competitive investment market since 1985, when SWIP became one of the first public pension managers to invest in private equity markets. According to State Street Global Markets, since 2008, SWIB has finished in the second quartile when compared to peers. So that means that we are above the median in terms of the performance of the managers that our team has selected over the years. This strong performance emphasizes the importance of the experienced and highly skilled team that SWIB has managing this asset class for us. So Edwin, certainly it suffices to say that we're facing a lot of uncertainty right now heading into 2023. What would you say to the WRS participants who are listening and feeling that uncertainty? Well, I'd say SWIB will continue to be innovative to keep pace with an ever-changing investment management landscape while remaining focused on thoughtful asset allocation, significant portfolio diversification, and strong internal management. We remain committed to our long-term investment strategy to keep annuity adjustments and contribution rates stable and deliver the benefits promised to the over 660,000 WRS participants. Edwin, that's a lot of great information you shared with us today. We appreciate you joining us on the SWIB podcast and sharing your thoughts on what we just went through in 2022 and what we might expect in the year ahead. Well, thank you very much. And it's always a pleasure and a privilege to reach out and communicate to all of our stakeholders. And thank you to all our listeners for checking out this episode of the SWIB Podcast. The SWIB Podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Our producer is Larry Kilgore III. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss. 